to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we bring them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good today, Sarah. It's been a pretty um, lackadaisical kind of day around Castle Scream Scene. I've mostly just been preparing for the new D&D campaign we're starting in the next couple days. Mm-hmm. You don't feel like there's a curse that is weighing over your head? No. No, no I don't. No rainy clouds coming over? N- not not at the moment, no. Okay. Well, that's good. That's all about to change, though. What are we watching today? Well, Sarah, today we are watching Curse of the Cat People mm. from 1944. What do you suspect this curse is? A marketing ploy? <laughs> well, because, like, in the first Cat People film, so two years before this film, the main character thinks that she's cursed. Mm-hmm. But now we're just, like, talking explicitly about the curse? Like, why Why is this one called Curse of the Cat People? Because it's a title that the RKO marketing department uh-huh. came up with, Sarah. Um, yeah, Curse of the Cat People is a sequel to Cat People, in the sense that it picks up with the same main character's sometime later after the original story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in that definition of sequel, uh, this is a sequel to Cat People. It's probably a good idea to go over what the deal with Cat People was, in case listeners tuning in now haven't heard our Cat People episode and don't have the time to go back and listen to all, what, two hours of it? <laughs> I mean, we're, we're on episode 115 That's not counting the appeals episodes Mm -hmm. or the insert type of episodes. There's a lot of content for people to have to sift through, so we try to make things easier for you. Mm -hmm. So let's give a brief overview of the original Cat People. For sure. So it's episode 98, if you do find you have some spare time and you want to go listen to it. It's currently ranked number two. Oh, wow. Pretty hard bar is set for Curse of the Cat People. Hmm... Yeah, we'll see how well it does. Mm. Um, Cat People is from 1942, and it was the first of these Luton horror movies from RKO. How many Luton films have we watched so far? Like four? Uh, Yeah, in terms of produced by Val Luton, we've seen Cat People, I Walked with a Zombie, The Leopard Man, The Seventh Victim, and Ghost Ship. So five. So this would be the sixth. Five films after Cat People from the Luton B-movie production unit that we've been watching, and none of them have really lived up to the first film, Cat People. I mean, I Walked with a Zombie, I think, ranks pretty high at the moment as well. It's also in the top ten. But you're right, there's been sort of a, um, like a bit of a drop-off after that. That being said, I don't think any of them have been... Bad. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. Cat People has director Jacques Tourneur directing, and it's actually through his partnership with Luton that Turner eventually graduated up to A Pictures, and that happened after Leopard Man, Mm -hmm. I believe. Cat People also, I feel like I would call it a quintessential Luton film because it's based on his 1930 short story, The Bagheeta. That short story was adapted for screen by DeWitt Bodine, 
And of course, Luton always has his fingers in the writing throughout the whole process, but the fact that it's coming from one of his own short stories is significant to me Mm -hmm. and probably speaks to the quality of the storytelling in the movie. With Turner and cinematographer Nicholas Misuraka um, and editor Mark Robeson, Cat People is pretty significant in how it uses suggestion and darkness and kind of audio editing to hint at the spooks and scares. Um, For example, with inventing the Luton bus. Mm -hmm. All through these Luton movies, we've had music by Roy Webb, um, and that's the same with the first Cat People. Was Roy Webb just, like, on staff at RKO, or was he specifically with this unit? Um, I'm not sure of the answer to that question. He certainly was on staff at RKO, um, but yeah, he, he did the music for all of these... Luton films. Mm-hmm. Now, as we've reiterated in all of the films on Luton's production unit, um, they had a pretty small budget. The idea was, like, spend as little money as possible to make as much money as possible. Yeah. Um, and their budget for Cat People was about $134,000, but the box office went crazy for cat people and they grossed like eight million dollars or something like that Mm -hmm. uh rko was in debt like in the red really significantly and was able to just like pop out of debt because of cat people Mm -hmm. um kind of a dream scenario for the production heads cat people stars french actress simone simone as irina or irvana depending on who says her name Mm mm-hmm She's a recent Serbian immigrant to New York who fears she's a cat person. This is a legend from her village of women who, if they experience specifically sexual urges, but any kind of strong emotion, they will turn into a cat and maul the person they love. Mm -hmm. These fears come to the surface when she falls in love with Oliver Reed, played by Kent Smith. Though they marry, they never actually consummate the marriage or argue um, to try to avoid these intense emotions that could bring out the panther and Irina. Irina fully believes that she is a cat person, and what's interesting about the film is Oliver doesn't think she's actually a cat person, but he supports that that's her belief and believes it's a mental illness. So he arranges for Irina to go see a psychologist. And this is Dr. Lewis Judd, played by Tom Conway, the first appearance of Judd. He later appears in Seventh Victim. Yes. Who agrees that this legend is kind of a a fantasy or psychological condition. But when Oliver begins to fall for his colleague, Alice Moore, played by Jane Randolph, a panther begins to stalk in the night and tries on several occasions to attack Alice. Oliver is faced with a question of, you know, I've now fallen for another woman, but I love Irina and I want to make sure she's supported, so do I divorce her and kind of abandon her, or do I help get her into an institution with Dr. Judd's help and just support her in that way? Mm-hmm. Um, and he chooses the latter option. In one last attempt to basically cure Irina, Dr. Judd kisses her, and she then does indeed turn into a panther and mauls him to death. Mm-hmm. Rightfully so, because he forces himself on her. Mm-hmm. Ivina, um, back into human form, uh, runs to the nearby zoo and releases a panther that 
um, she's kind of come to admire at the zoo throughout the film. Um, once she releases this panther, it escapes and attacks her. The panther runs off, gets hit by a car, but when Oliver and Alice find Irina's body, she's actually turned into a panther. And Oliver remarks that she never lied to us. So by the end of the film, it is confirmed that it it is supernatural. Irina was turning into a panther. Mm-hmm. She was, in fact, a cat person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's significant that they confirm it at the very end, because throughout the rest of the film, it's all very, like, is it just in her head? Um, is there really a creature going after Alice? Because everything is in shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the themes that were pretty significant for a movie in 1942 to be talking about, let alone a B-movie horror mm-hmm. film, were things like immigrant social isolation, mental illness, a fear of intimacy, sexuality, a real depiction of adult relationships. And that kind of realism, despite the supernatural elements, um, made it really feel like cat people and really all of the other RKO pictures are happening in the real world, Mm -hmm. which is a significant and in stark contrast to Universal's kind of milieu or way of making films, which feels very, like, you know, off in their own what year is it, where are we type of environment. Yeah, the Universal horror movies are basically in a fantasy sort of alternate Europe. Yeah. You know, they have as much relationship to, like, real-world Europe as, like, Full Metal Alchemist does, you know? (laughs) It's a version of Europe. Sure. An AU, as it were. Yeah. Um, So that that gives you an an overview of Cat People. It's now two years later. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is now the sixth film that we will have watched for the show um, that's produced from Luton as, like, a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about it. So, as uh, as you mentioned, Sarah, Cat People was a huge success. Mm-hmm. Um, so naturally, RKO wanted to do a direct sequel. Now, the thing to understand about these Luton movies is they were produced on a very quick schedule. So in addition to being made for 150000 dollars or less, and with a running time of 75 minutes or less, um, they were also often made very quickly, to the extent that I Walked With a Zombie and Leopard Man were, like, both in the can before Cat People even had a chance to come out and be this monster hit. Mm, I had forgotten about that. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, like, what's actually come out since Cat People, or what they've made since Cat People came out, you know, has been Seventh Victim... And Ghost Ship. And RKO also gave Luton the title to each of his movies, and he had to make a story based on that title, and we've talked about that before. So the title for this movie is Curse of the Cat People, which is, I think, very intentionally a vague horror movie title, right? It tells you that this is a follow-up to Cat People, there was a curse in that movie, so here you go, right? Like, it, it doesn't have a lot of specifics behind it. Um, But it's also very explicit and eye-catching. Evocative. Right. As we mentioned in our episode from Ghost Ship, the key actors from Cat People, uh, Simone Simone, Kent Smith, and Jane Randolph, were not immediately available upon completion of filming of The Seventh Victim on May 29th, 1943. So this forced the production of the film The Ghost Ship as sort of a stall to keep Luton and his team employed until Curse of the Cat People could start production. Mm -hmm. 
The Ghost Ship began production on August 3rd, and The Seventh Victim was released in theaters on August 21st. Now, the troubled production on Seventh Victim, that film became the first Luton picture to actually flop at the box office, which we discussed in that episode. So that sort of ended the string of hits that had begun with the original Cat People. Now, given the marching orders to make a sequel to a movie whose central character had, you know, died at the end, yeah, Luton took an unusual path. Working with Cat People writer DeWitt Bodine, they developed a story centered on the daughter of Oliver Reed and Alice, uh, who are now married. And they were sort of left together following the death of Irina in the previous film. In the story, their daughter is six years old. So... It's been at least seven years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, since, since the original. Uh, in the story. Luton based the experiences of the little girl, Amy on his own childhood flights of imagination and his feeling of disconnection from reality, with several of the film's incidents and details coming from his own childhood. He also based the difficult relationship between Amy and Oliver on his own strained relationship with his daughter Nina, who was 12 at the time the film was written. Is that his oldest or his only His oldest uh, child. His younger child is Val Luton Jr., who was born in 1937, so he would have been like six at the time they were making this movie. Um, And from what I understand, had like a better relationship with his father than his sister did. Filming for Curse of the Cat People began on August 26th. Uh, So five days after Seventh Victim came out in theaters. And directing duties for this film were in the hands of first-time feature director Gunther von Frisch. Born in 1906 in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in what is now Croatia, Von Frisch moved to the United States in 1930. He had gotten his start as an assistant director before becoming a director of short films starting in 1936. Curse of the Cat People was Von Frisch's first feature film assignment. RKO allotted an 18-day shooting schedule and a budget of $147,000. So, a little over two weeks and a little under the $150,000 cap. On set, shooting the movie, Von Frisch was noticed to be very nervous and hesitant about what he was doing and kind of unsure about his choices. And Luton grew concerned at the pace that filming was going. Uh, And he was rightly concerned because at the end of the 18 days, Von Frisch had shot only half of the screenplay. Mm. So, RKO fired Von Frisch, who would not get to make another feature film until 1947, uh, the movie Cigarette Girl for Columbia. RKO then asked Luton to choose a replacement, or else they would. Uh, So Luton promoted the film's editor, Robert Wise, which resulted in Wise's assistant editor, J.R. Whitridge, becoming the movie's, like, full editor. So Robert Wise was born in Indiana in 1914, and he initially had wanted to go into journalism, But his family couldn't afford for him to attend college during the Great Depression, so he moved out to Hollywood and got a job at the RKO shipping department, thanks to his older brother, who was already working there. He worked his way up into the sound department, becoming the assistant sound editor to T.K. Wood, who is the studio's head sound effects editor. But Wise sort of became more interested in film editing rather than sound editing, so he transferred to work for editor William Hamilton in 1936. 
Under Hamilton, Wise worked on many motion pictures, uh, most notably the 1939 version of Hunchback of Notre Dame with... um, Charles Lawton, right? That's right. And by the end of 1939, he was working solo as a uh, full editor. In 1941, he was assigned to edit Citizen Kane with Mark Robeson as his assistant editor. He also edited Wells' second film for RKO, The Magnificent Ambersons, undertaking the recutting of that film under studio orders and shooting new footage where needed in order to patch over the gaps left in the narrative. So that would have been like his first directing, directing experience, yeah. I don't envy him having to do that. Mm. For his work on Citizen Kane, he had been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Film Editing. So, Robeson, who was his assistant, got moved up to full editor to become the editor of these Luton pictures, and then Luton promoted him to director. And now Luton is giving Robert Wise his first directing job, moving him up to replace Von Frisch. Uh, Wise completed the shoot in nine days... On October 4th. So basically he shot twice as fast as Von Frisch. If Von Frisch did half the script in 18 days and Wise did the other half in nine. The film's returning performers from Cat People had all been in one film each since then. Simon Simon in Tahiti Honey. Kent Smith in Three Russian Girls. And Jane Randolph in The Falcon Strikes Back. uh, All of which were released in 1943. The film's real star, however, is Anne Carter, who was just seven years old at the time of filming. Her father was an executive for Dodge, while her mother had always wanted to be an actress, but had been disallowed from pursuing that career by her own parents. So, at the age of four, Anne's mother had her start auditioning for parts around L.A., which Anne did quite successfully. Curse of the Cat People was her fifth film, uh, but it was her first major role. Carter continued acting until she contracted polio in 1948. Her acting money paid for her medical care, and after her recovery, she made the decision to go to college and become a teacher, much to the disappointment of her mother, who wanted her to continue acting. Ann Carter passed away in 2014 at the age of 77 from ovarian cancer. Uh, Returning Val Luton regular cast members include Elizabeth Russell, and Sir Lancelot, and returning Luton crew members include uh, Nicholas Musaraka doing the cinematography, music by Roy Webb, and art direction by D'Agostino and Keller. So, RKO executives were disappointed when they screened the finished film, which ended up being more of a children's fantasy movie than the horror sequel that they had ordered. Luton begged for the studio to let him change the title to Amy and Her Friend um, because he just felt that, like, Curse of the Cat People was not descriptive of what the movie ended up being. But RKO refused and also ordered additional scenes to be shot to add a bit more uh, menace and suspense to the film. These scenes were then shot uh, the week of November 12th, 1943, and in adding these scenes, other scenes were cut so that the picture would remain under 75 minutes long. And some of these scenes um, sort of explain some of the plot at certain points, or at least like some of the gaps that exist in the narrative as they are in the film now. With all the delays and the reshoots, Curse of the Cat People ended up costing 
$212,000, far pricier than the average Luton picture. Yeah, a lot of that is probably the extra nine days of shooting, Mm -hmm. honestly. Yeah. Like, reshoots or adding scenes, that can be costly, but from what I've seen of the films that we've covered, uh, going over schedule is really where the money gets spent. Yeah. RKO insisted on marketing the movie as a cat people follow-up, with taglines like, The Black Menace Creeps Again, and The Beast Woman Haunts the Night Anew. Ultimately, this bait-and-switch tactic backfired. Yeah, that's never going to go well. The movie was released on March 2nd, 1944, a month after the ghost ship had been pulled from theaters over a plagiarism lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And the kind of audience that wanted a sequel to Cat People was largely unresponsive, to the story of a little girl's childhood angst, and the kind of audience that may have been more appreciative of that kind of movie, like parents and young children, were scared away by the horror movie marketing. So, the film lost money, uh, except when it was screened on a double bill with the original Cat People. (laughs) However, it did earn Luton some of the best critical acclaim of his career, and it was also well-received by child psychologists, and it is frequently screened in university psychology courses. So it sounds like this isn't actually going to be a horror film? We're going to have to watch and take a look. Curse the Cat People's critical history has kind of revolved around that question of, like, is this a horror movie, or is this something totally different? And if it's something totally different, does that make it a disappointing follow-up to Cat People, Or does that make it a more interesting follow-up to Cat People? And kind of how those things relate. Um, Certainly it was marketed by RKO as one, and it's sort of considered part of the Luton Horror canon, Mm -hmm. uh, the same way that Ghost Ship is considered part of the Luton Horror canon. But we kind of ultimately came down on the side of Ghost Ship being a thriller and marked it on the miscellaneous list. Yeah, but the line between thriller and horror is a lot thinner than a line between a child's fantasy film and horror. You know, you say that, but, like, if you think about movies for children, especially from this period, stuff like Wizard of Oz, you know, I think terror and, like, scary elements are always kind of a key ingredient in memorable children's movies. But but you're certainly right that, like, traditionally there's a gap there. Yeah. But I think it's going to be interesting to see, like, if we think of a spectrum and we have something like, I don't know, Wizard of Oz on one end of the spectrum. Okay. Where, you know, that's a kid's fantasy movie, but, like, you definitely talk to people and they're like, oh, I found the flying monkey scary or I found the wicked witch scary or whatever when I was a kid. And then on the other end of that spectrum, we have, like, the original cat people, right? Which is, like, an adult horror movie that's out to scare you. And in the middle of that spectrum, we might have something like like a Don Bluth movie, like The Secret of Nim. I was thinking of Secret of Nim. Where it's like, yeah. this is for children. This is, you shouldn't have made this. Like, this is, you, this is, listen, man, you've crossed some lines in your children's movie here, right? So it's going to be interesting to see, like, where does Curse of the Cat People fall on that uh, mm-hmm. spectrum? Because if it falls between 
Wizard of Oz and Secret of Nim, I think it's not horror. If it falls kind of between Secret of Nim and Cat People, it might justifiably be horror. I don't know, but I think it's worth watching and considering the question. Cool. Well, on that note, how are we watching this? So, we'll be watching Curse of the Cat People as part of the Val Luton Horror Collection uh, DVD set, which contains... Well, there you go. We don't even need to discuss if it's in the horror DVD collection. So was Ghost Ship. <laughs> That's sort of the definition of, you know, Val Luton's horror canon. Um, the movies he made that aren't considered horror aren't in that box set. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so it's available on DVD as part of the Val Luton Horror Collection. It's also available on Blu-ray from Shout Factory, and it's also available online on YouTube and Google Play. Cool. Well, if it's on YouTube, y'all can find it on our YouTube playlist, which is available at our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Curse of the Cat People. Just what is this curse? Is this horror? Is it just people? Who knows? From 1944, directed by Gunther von Frisch and Robert Wise. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone to Scream Scene. We've just finished watching The Curse of the Cat People from 1944, directed by Gunther von Frisch and Robert Wise. Sarah, what did you think of this movie? I feel like I kind of wish we had some time to really sit with Mm. this movie. Um, Unfortunately, with our production schedule, that's not quite possible. Mm. Um, But I I think this is something that I'll be thinking about for a while. Mm. Yeah, what did you think? Yeah, this movie um, really strikes a chord with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, on, on some very basic levels, I think the cast is great. Music, cinematography, all of the like production-level stuff is, is great. It's the quality we've come to expect from these Luton flicks. Yeah, it's interesting because like, it's very different. Yeah. But it's still very like identifiably a Val Luton movie. Yeah, it's funny how that is. Mm. There's like a certain feel, mm-hmm. tone. I really liked this. Um, it's so bizarre on on a certain level, though. And by that, I mean the level of if you're someone whose job is to sell movies, w- w- what do you do with this? Um, <laughs> it's kind of like a 1940s Pan's Labyrinth a little bit. Yeah, I guess. Not quite as... Um, Intense? Yeah. Let's 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 back up and talk about the story and then we can sort of dive into the analyses. For sure. So, as we kind of set up in the context setting, um this film follows Oliver Reed and Alice Moore. They end up together at the end of Cat People, and when this film opens, they've clearly married and they have a 6-year-old daughter named Amy. And when the film opens, um it's Amy at school, and um, she's kind of shown to be a bit of a, a daydreamer. She doesn't have a lot of friends. She's very introverted. And Oliver is kind of concerned about her daydreaming, especially the potential for those daydreams to 
negatively impact her. And this is because of Irena's fantasies um, of, like, I'm a cat person, blah blah blah, um, stuff we set up in the context setting. Even though Amy doesn't have any blood relationship to Irina, it's definitely, to Irina, it's definitely established, like, nah, she is Alice's daughter. Mm -hmm. It just seems like there's, like, a curse on their house, Mm -hmm. as they kind of put it. So Amy is kind of further ostracized because she failed to invite her classmates to her birthday party. Um, She put it in a magic tree because it was going to be a a magic mailbox, but obviously that's not the case, and so the invites didn't send, so no one came, and they're upset that she didn't invite them. Blah. This is a thing that really happened to Val Luton as a kid. Oh, really? Yeah, the the tree story is something that he did as a kid. (laughs) Well, sucks that he didn't have anyone come to his party. (laughs) One day, Amy is walking along, alone, no friends, and she hears a voice calling from this old house that we hear some of the other children say is like, spooky, haunted, a witch lives there, whatsoever. It looks like the Adams family house, you know. Yeah. Um, so a voice calls to her and throws her a ring. And turns out that this is the Farron house. Um, Julia and her daughter Barbara live here. Um, Barbara's played by Elizabeth Russell. Um, and we get kind of a bit of a spooky moment because Elizabeth Russell like just shows up and tells Amy to leave. And if you want someone to be mysteriously spooky and ominous with few words, here's Elizabeth Russell. She does it so well, though. Mm. A little bit later, it's established that Julia, the older woman who's living there, um, may have been a famous actress, um, but she also seems to kind of live in her own fantasies as well. And her daughter, Barbara, Julia believes Barbara died when she was six years old, Uh, The adult Barbara, who currently takes care of her, is an imposter, a spy, a liar. So Amy now has this ring, and she wishes on the ring for a friend. And Irena appears to Amy, and they become friends. Um, Months pass, and now it's winter. It was kind of summer when we started. Amy's continued this friendship both with Irena and with Julia. And right around Christmas, Amy finds a photo of Oliver and Irena and says, Oh, Dad, you know my friend too. And he's like, What? She's dead. What is going on? And he gets angry at the insistence that Irena is in his daughter's life, that she's apparently standing in the garden when no one's there. So Oliver punishes Amy with her first spanking, which I do appreciate the film treating it as, like, the serious thing it is. Yeah, it's it's weird. I, I feel like... So I got spanked as a child a few times. Did mm-hmm. you ever get spanked as a child? Yes, but more often than not, um, I had other punishments. Okay, yeah. I, I Like, when I was really young, like, I don't think I was ever spanked after the time I was, like, going to school, but mm-hmm. when I was really young. And I feel like, just, like, looking at the way media depicts stuff like that, that I'm, like, just the exact age when that, like, stopped being normal. Because, like, now that's considered to be, like, corporal punishment and, like, a form of child abuse, but you go back and look at, like, any media from the before times, and it's just, like, normal. It's just, like, a standard normal part of parenting. And it's, so I always have, like, a really weird feeling about it, because it feels like like, my childhood was, like, right on that 
line when that societal attitude shift happened. Mm. Yeah, I find it tough to talk about discipline and punishment from parents because I'm always concerned if my experience is far too extreme and I shouldn't talk about it. Yeah, that's the thing about like childhood, right? Is like you you're never quite sure like was my childhood normal because you you don't have really anything to compare it by until like you start talking to other people and everyone's childhoods were different, right? So it's yeah. like was my childhood normal and if so is that a good thing or not? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Anyways. And what does normal mean, mean anyway? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would love to meet someone who does not feel like they have some sort of trauma from their childhood. Even, like, a mild form. They exist, I think. But anyways... Yeah, back back, <laughs> back to the synopsis. So because Amy has had this punishment, Reyna appears to her and says, you know, I should not be here. Clearly my being here, like, I came here because you were lonely, like, you brought me into existence because of your sadness, but I'm don't want to be here if you're going to be punished like this, so I'm going to go. And Amy is very upset about this. She's six, remember. So she sneaks out and runs into the snowstorm to look for Irena, and eventually she gets lost. She does, though, eventually find her way to the Farron house. So in the midst of that part of the plot, um, we do have some scenes of Julia and Barbara where we get established that, you know, Julia thinks Barbara is actually an imposter. And Barbara comments that Julia's behavior of thinking that she's an imposter and everything like that gets worse after Amy's been around. And Barbara shares that, like, I have a lot of resentment with this kid. Barbara has a lot of resentment of Amy for essentially stealing this relationship with her own mother. And she says that she'll kill Amy the next time she comes to the house. Um, Well, that night is the storm and Amy comes to the house Julia lets her in and tries to hide her upstairs because of Barbara's threat. Um, but, you know, Julia is very old and weak and can't make it up the stairs and has a heart attack on the way up. Barbara finds them and is furious, um, calls out Amy for, like, you've even stolen the last, like, moments with my mother, and tells her to come here in a very, like, you're in shit kind of tone. Amy is obviously scared, starts calling out for her friend, and then Irena appears kind of superimposed over Barbara. So Amy, comforted by seeing Irena, goes to her and hugs her and says, my friend, my friend. But she's hugging Barbara, and Barbara is both kind of confused at being called my friend, but also is like very angry and upset and actually goes to strangle Amy. We hear kind of a weakened, my friend. And then Barbara stops and releases um, and starts crying. And that's when Amy's family, with the police, finally arrive to the house. They've tracked her down and they take her home. Oliver is carrying Amy home and promises to believe her stories, believe her fantasies. I'm so sorry. Asks if Irena is in the garden. Amy does see her there, um, kind of waving and smiling. And Oliver says, yes, I see her too, even though he clearly doesn't. He's just believing her fantasy. The end. So there's a lot going on in this movie. And even in, like, the basic plot summary that Sarah's given, like, you know, there's a lot of incidents that happen in this movie that maybe don't further the plot, but further things thematically. Mm -hmm. And I think if you are 
in any way like interested in this movie after hearing this episode, you should definitely go and see it because I think there's a lot that probably doesn't translate well to like having to sort of explain it after the fact. Yeah, like one thing that I skipped is um, during one of the first visits that Amy has with Julia, Julia starts telling her this story of the Headless Horseman um, because they live in Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, they live in Terrytown, which is where Sleepy Hollow is set, which I think is nearby where like Val Luton lived when he lived with like his mom and his like gay aunt actress. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, so Julia is telling the story and uh, Amy clearly gets scared. And um, as Amy's running away in the snowstorm, she hides by this bridge, hears what she thinks are horse hooves, and gets very scared again and continues running and hiding and etc. So, like, there's moments like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of little things. Um, there's so much to potentially talk about with this movie. If you looked up idiosyncratic in the dictionary, this movie's picture would be there. <laughs> um, I don't really know if it's horror... Maybe if you're six years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also not rightly sure what it is. I can't think of a lot of things that I would put in the same box as this movie. Maybe I'd be able to see connections to other things more easily if I was six years old. Mm-hmm. But like, because there are kind of things in other movies about children that are kind of like this. But, you know, if you were in marketing, the question you ask is like, who's the movie for? Or, or more cynically, like, who's the target audience, right? And it's like, is the target audience for this movie people who liked cat people? If I was in marketing, I wouldn't identify those as being the same audience, but I liked cat people and I liked this movie. <laughs> um, if I was in marketing, I would also go, like, is the target audience for this movie, like, kids? Well, there's a lot of, like, stuff in here that's a little bit more complicated and a little bit more mature than what you would normally expect a kid to be able to deal with. But the movie's so centered around children and and Amy's idea of her imagination and stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think, like, oh, but this is a movie for adults. Like, this is a movie for Val Luton, like, specifically. (laughs) And I'm not saying that, like, other people can't enjoy it. I think this is a really good movie that a lot of people could potentially enjoy, but it doesn't fit into the ways that movies are marketed. Because I think it's hard to, you know, say to someone, hey, there's this movie that perfectly encapsulates what it's like to be a lonely, over-imaginative, very sad child. You should go see it. (laughs) You know? Yeah. um, How do you put that in a trailer? Yeah. I... That's kind of why I'm I'm perplexed by this movie. Um, I am impressed by it, and I actually greatly admire it for keeping the perspective on Amy. Mm -hmm. There are moments where we have the adults talking, but it's not a lot. It's mainly with Amy and how she sees the world, and I really appreciated that. Ann Carter, who plays Amy, is really good. Yeah. Um, Like, I'm very impressed with the way she was able to act and actually, like, convey certain things about being a child in these um, complex situations. And I I think part of what we have to think about with this movie is the fact that what is scary to a child is not what's scary to an adult. Mm -hmm. Because what's scary to a child is, um, like, the part with the Headless Horseman story. 
and the film is great at showing that. Like when Julia is telling the story, we hear the sound effects come in and we hear the galloping and like it gets more intense. And we even have shots of like Amy listening to the story, clearly getting scared, intercut with Julia coming right at the camera. Yeah, and being coming, underlit, like she's Bella Lugosi. Yeah, and coming right at Amy. Like, it's very well done to show I'm getting scared from this story. Even when Amy first enters kind of the main room of Julia's house, where there's a lot of, like... Taxidermy. Yeah, a lot of taxidermy. And it's dark, and it's scary, and there's a couple moments where it's like, is, is this haunted? Like, the book opened and flipped on its own like what is going on and so you get a feeling of what amy's perspective of the world is well what's smart about it is that it's made by these guys who figured out how to make scary movies right and they shoot it like one of those movies right like elizabeth russell is shot to be very scary and, you know, and, like, the scene that you're talking about where we're in the Farron household, like, they shoot it the same way they would shoot a horror scene in one of the other Luton horror movies, right? We even get a little bit of a Luton bust because we hear, like, some intense laughter Yeah, yeah, it's, and it turns out to be Julia. And, like, a, a loud shutter sound, but it's just, like, the blinds being pulled up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, and that's, that's the Luton bust for sure. There are two things that this movie is doing, the fact that it manages to like merge them into a cohesive whole, I think is impressive because one thing this movie is doing is it is in fact a sequel to cat people. It's just not the way that sequels are usually done. Mm -hmm. The other thing that this movie is, is like an exorcism of like childhood drama for Val Luton. Like there's so much in this movie that you can kind of tie back to his life, right? Like the friendship with Julia, this aging actress, and the fact that, like, Baluton was, like, raised by his mother and his, like, actress aunt and stuff like that. Julia's a really interesting sort of meta character in a way because, um, I don't know if her first name was ever actually said in the movie. I don't remember. I think, I just remember her being called Mrs. Farron because that's what Amy calls her. Mm-hmm. But, um, she's played by this actress, um, Julia Dean, and I didn't really go into her details in the context setting because it basically is just that she's playing herself. Um, Julia Dean was an actress who was, like, popular on stage and in film in, like, the 1890s to, like, 1910s, and then was, like, old and retired by the time of this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, she's she's playing a version of herself. Kind of, like, just pulling back a quick second. So, like, I started with, like, this dichotomy of what's scary to a child mm. versus what's scary to an adult. Mm-hmm. I think what's scary to an adult would be when the kid is in danger, like in the kind of climax of the film with Mm -hmm. Amy getting strangled by Barbara. But otherwise, what this movie offers adults is that feeling of almost like a pained sadness. It's not quite melancholy. I, I don't know really... Or nostalgia. Like, I don't know how to describe it, but like basically the identification of a sad childhood, an identification with the sad childhood. Versus, like, for the kids who see this movie, for them what's scary are, like, the things I outlined, like, the creepy room, the Headless Horseman story, um, and even, like, feeling sad and lonely with being ostracized by your friends or your classmates. But then she, 
Amy is rescued by Irena. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they would find Irena scary, just as Amy doesn't find Irena scary, and therefore, like, the way that the film is presenting her is not scary. Mm-hmm. But through the marketing, and if you know, like, the first film, for adults, Irena logically should be positioned as the source of fear. And I think that's why there's a lot of, like, confusion about this film, because that expectation is not met. You know, the other thing is that what's not met in terms of expectation is what you would expect from a horror sequel. Because in a lot of horror sequels, you know, if you think of, like, Aliens or, you know... Or even the Frankenstein series, as it's been up to now. The way that they work often is the surviving characters go through the same shit again. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's more of it this time. Like, a standard sequel to Cat People would be like, I don't know, Oliver and Alice, for some reason, have to go to Serbia because they've been contacted by, like, a member of Irena's family wishing to know what happened to her. And then the whole village turns into panthers and tries to kill them, and they have to make their way out. Like, that's that's a standard sequel. And this is, I think, a much better sequel in some ways than most horror movies get. But it depends on what you want out of a sequel. If what you want out of a sequel is more of what you got in the original, mm, this isn't great. No. But if what you want out of a sequel is to see, like, what happens to those characters next, this makes a lot of sense. Because what this movie does is, rather than concoct some reason for them to go fight monsters again, this is a movie about dealing with the trauma left behind by the events of the first movie. Um, And specifically, it's a generational trauma. Yes. Because Irena isn't a source of fear for Amy, but she is a source of fear for Oliver. Um, Oliver is still riddled with doubt and grief and blame and denial over what happened to Irena, and this has kind of been passed on to Amy um, in the sense that, like, Oliver is so neurotic about this that Amy has become this kind of lonely kid who, you know, is very much someone who exists in solitude, has a tendency towards fantasy, has that kind of melancholy, because the thing about it is Amy's being raised in a very sad household without knowing why, Mm -hmm. and that sadness is kind of bleeding into her own psychology. And Oliver's worried that her having these flights of fancy are going to, like, make her susceptible to be, like, you know like Irena, and the fact that it's Irena that is actually her fantasy certainly, I think, explains to me why, like, Oliver gets so upset. Because it's like, why should you even know anything about this person? Like, it's just his deepest fear would be Amy being like Irena, and she shouldn't have any knowledge of Irena, and here it is, that's her imaginary friend, right? So I think that for Oliver, that's certainly what he's afraid of. Yeah, there's just a lot going on. There's a lot you can read into this movie, The intergenerational trauma that I'm describing is mirrored between Oliver and Amy and Mrs. Farron and Barbara, Mm -hmm. right? But in that case, it's the parent who has the loose grip on reality. So there's kind of a doubling that's going on there. There's another doubling of, like, you know, her seeing Irena interposed over Barbara, which is, like, almost like a weird meta-reference to the connection between Irena and, like, Elizabeth Russell's, like, mysterious <laughs> character and like, the original cat people. See, I I think in doing that, they're saying something about 
fantasies and the way they can save us. Well, and and you know, and they hint at they don't they don't really go into it, but like there's a hint of the idea that like that somehow Amy expressing that Love. friendship, yeah, to Barbara is will help heal Barbara. Yeah. But then the other thing is like we we never get let in on certain truths. Like the whole story of the Farrens, we aren't really told. Like Julia says, I was this great actress and here's my ring from the King of Spain and blah, blah, blah. We don't really know if that's true. And I mean, Barbara probably is her daughter, but like there's nothing one way or the other. Julia keeps going on about my daughter died when she was killed when she was six, but we never hear that story. Like what, why she thinks that we, but there is something about like why, Amy's parents don't want her going over there mm-hmm. and going over there alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, the town knows. Yeah, but we never hear the whole story. We don't know enough to actually put together what the truth is about those two. And it's the same thing. We actually never hear the whole story of Irena. Um, you really wouldn't know what everyone's alluding to if you haven't seen the first movie. They tell parts of the story, but they never really tell, like, the whole story. They never even, in dialogue, mention cats or <laughs> cat people yeah. once in the movie. Um, the, there's a bit at the very start where there's some boys bullying a black cat in a tree. And that's one of the things they added in the reshoots. <laughs> um, in many ways, I really think that in doing this, the movie kind of echoes the experience of children who live in the result of a family's past tragedies without ever really knowing what happened. So so to take a step back, and, like, I don't know what your experience is like with this, Sarah, because your upbringing was different than mine, but, like, I'm an only child. And part of being an only child is kind of creating a, a fantasy world around yourself to kind of keep yourself occupied, the same as, like, what Amy does here. Now, I never had, like, a quote-unquote imaginary friend. Did you ever have an imaginary friend? Not that I remember. Um... I did, like, have stuffies that I would not let go of. Mm. I had imaginary, like, worlds more than imaginary friends, um, where, like, you know, if I didn't have friends over who I could play with and I, you know, and I didn't have siblings, it wasn't like, oh, this is Bob. He's my imaginary friend. He goes everywhere with me. It was more like I would just play and play pretend without anyone else there, right? So, you know... I'm the captain of a starship and I'm talking to all the crew on the bridge and stuff, but there's no kids playing those parts. I'm talking to nobody, right? And there is no bridge. I'm just in my own little fantasy world all by myself. But the other thing about being a lonely kid or an only child, um, especially if you're kind of imaginative and, and smart, I think it's kind of common to form bonds with adults more than other children. Certainly I did. Um, I, I formed bonds with people who are older than me much, much more easily than people my own age. So I really, um, related to that with, with the way that Amy makes friends with, um, Mrs. Farron. But also when you're the only kid in the house, sometimes you're kind of privy to adult conversations that like you shouldn't be Mm -hmm. because like adults just have their friends over and they're just talking and you're just in the house and maybe you're not even in the same room, but you're in like another room and nothing else is making sounds. So you're just overhearing things and you'll overhear about like how, you know, I don't know, like old uncle Jimbo, you know, went crazy that one time and you have no idea what that means, right? 
you know, some weird references to, like, people you've never met or seen, and everyone in that room, all the adults know what they're talking about, but you have no idea, and you have to just, like, you're just, like, putting the pieces together for yourself after the fact, and maybe you never get the whole story. Um, and that really came across, I think, in the way that Irena has talked about in this movie. I would agree with that. And I think it's kind of for that reason why I was kind of reminded of parts of The Shining. Hmm. So The Shining obviously has, like, more of a focus on Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall's characters. Um, but the moments that we spend with their kid where, like, weird shit's going on, and he, like, no one explains to him why. Shit's going on with him and his family, but no one seems to, like, try to sit him down and say, like, no, honey, this is what's going on. It just felt similar, in a Mm. way. There was a moment when... So Amy went to go return the ring that she was given to um, Mrs. Farron, and she goes over there by herself, and then there... butler? Yeah, the Reeds have a servant, like a house servant. Yeah, Edward. Um, He goes over there and and takes her home, and as they're leaving, he stops her and says, you know, I don't want you coming over here without me. Mm -hmm. And she's like, Mrs. Farron seemed nice, and he's like, that may be so, but I don't want you coming over here without me. Mm -hmm. And just that feeling of, like, something serious is going on, but I don't know what it is. Mm Mm-hmm. And no one's telling me. Mm-hmm. That's that's a thing from my childhood. Definitely. What's interesting is, like, there are movies in the future of this movie that are horror movies from the point of view of kids. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like we've really gotten that before now. And it's something that, like, is hard to pull off, even though it makes a ton of sense. Stuff like The Shining or um, It, both of which are Stephen King books... You know, it makes sense to put a kid as the protagonist of a horror story because kids get frightened and they have imaginations that run away with them and, you know, they think that they saw something under their bed or in their closet and they go to tell their parents and their parents are like, ah, you're just imagining it. And then that makes it scarier because now no one's helping you. And, you know, that kind of thing. Like, it makes sense. On the other hand, horror movies tend to be very, like, disturbing and frightening and violent and like certainly in the days of like the MPAA tend to get like rated R which means like kids can't be the audience for them so it's this like weird disconnect where it's like a movie about children but it's for adults and I'm not sure this movie isn't really that either like I'm not sure who this movie is for I think this movie is for kids well this movie is for Kids like Amy. Yeah. Kids who are lonely and imaginative. But I also think this movie might be for parents of kids like Amy. Well... Because there's a thing in this movie that helps you... I think this movie helps you understand children like this a bit more. I would agree with that. Um, Here's the thing. A movie that's for kids, if it's going to be successful, in my opinion, needs to have something for adults, too. Mm. That's why Pinky and the Brain and Animaniacs were great, but, like, who the fuck has fond memories of bonding with their parents over VeggieTales, you know? I mean, who knows? Maybe there's some people out there, but (laughs) yeah, I I get what you mean. Um, In this movie, I, I really feel like, yes, it's a horror movie, and it's a horror movie for children. 
and it's not really a horror movie for adults in the same way of like, oh, the source of fear is right there. It's that fear of the trauma that um, you've described, the generational mm. trauma. And it's characteristic of Luton films to have a fear that is more than just the werewolf is coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to have a fear of, like, the unknown, of death, of suicide, of, like, living in this world. Um, <laughs> things like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough because, like, I think the movie has stuff in it that's challenging and, like, is kind of, you know, maybe disturbing, maybe frightening but also is, like, that kind of disturbing and frightening that, like, you need to have to grow up, uh, that, like, you need to confront. Um, it's funny, like, there's this whole cottage industry on the internet of, like, listicles that are, like, you know, six movies for kids that should never have been made or whatever. <laughs> and it's always, you know, like, oh, like, can you believe they put that in a kid's movie? Like, what the fuck were they thinking? And it's, it's, I read this article and, I don't know if it was, maybe it was a Tumblr post. I don't know. Someone once wrote about how the disconnect that's happening there is that when you're like an adult and the world is like a complicated place that's stressful to deal with, your thought is that like children should be protected because like they don't have to deal with that shit yet. So they should just have like a nice safe world. So children's media should be like nice and safe. But when you're a kid, nice and safe is boring. And what's exciting is things that feel adult, that feel a little bit more challenging and complex. And kids like being scared. You know, adults are like, can you believe like Bambi, like where they kill his mom? It's so sad. That would have, you know, scarred so many kids. Or people talk about like, you know, oh, like the stuff from Secret of Nim is nightmare fuel or whatever. Kids fucking love nightmare fuel. Kids fucking love that shit. They, they, you know, because it gives them a heightened heightened emotions that they don't get otherwise, right? That they need in order to, like, grow up. Well, and, like, learn how to process those emotions when they become real and not something that was just, like, given to you by a movie. Um, all of which is to say that, like, it's it's interesting to look at this movie as an adult because it's, like, it's too saccharine to really be what you would, like, immediately think of as horror, but it's a little too disturbing to be what you'd immediately think of as, like, a kid's movie. But, like... If you go and you watch good kids' movies, that's kind of what they're like. Like, you know, there's not a far stone's throw between this and, like, Return to Oz or, you know, The Dark Crystal or anything like that. Or even, like I said at the beginning, Pan's Labyrinth. The difference between this and Pan's Labyrinth is the imaginary stuff is not comforting. It's monsters. Because the real world stuff is also terrible, right? Like... Like, Pan's Labyrinth is this idea, but, like, okay, let's turn the dial all the way into horror mm-hmm. rather than this movie where it's kind of... It's it's a fantasy movie with scary parts, which is what all good fantasy has. So, you you brought up Return to Oz, mm. and you've also invoked Secret of Nim. Um, you had a, a spectrum in right. the beginning <laughs> where it was Wizard of Oz to Secret of Nim to... Cat People. To cat people. Right. Where, like, we're not into ranking yet. Mm-hmm. Where on the spectrum do you think Curse sits? I think it sits somewhere between Wizard of Oz and Secret of Nim. Yeah. Because it doesn't feel, like, as... You know, I also brought up, like, Dark Crystal and stuff. It doesn't feel as edgy as those things. It, it's not... I mean, but then Barbara does try to strangle her. 
Um, like it's. You know, it reminds me of Labyrinth because Labyrinth isn't like watching it as an adult. It isn't scary. Labyrinth has some tone problems, man. Labyrinth is like we're gonna have some fun, goofy Listen, Muppet songs. You're supposed to be attracted to the source of your fear, but also we're going to have like this baby get threatened with death. It's very <laughs> lots of tone problems there. Um, you know, the other thing that it reminds me of a little bit is, um, in a weird way, Home Alone. Mm. With, like, the, the like, weird old man that he's afraid of that turns out to be super yeah, nice. Yeah, that's Elizabeth Russell. Yeah. It doesn't quite turn out to be super nice. Well, it turns out to be, like, broken and human. Yeah, I don't know. I, I really don't... I don't know, Sarah, because this movie's... They're, it's so weird. Um... Before we go any further, because it feels like we're trying to put a pin in the... It feels like we're trying to, like, hit the nail on the is it horror or not, are we ranking it or not, which, like, that's certainly the discussion that'll lead us into ranking. Before we get there, Luton movies love to play with the idea of, like, is there really something supernatural happening, or is it all in the imagination? And that question has never been, like, more in the forefront than this movie, which is all about a kid with an overactive imagination, right? Like, this movie's making that, was there really a cat person or not question into, like, the text, the plot of the movie. So, your opinion, is Irena an imaginary friend, or is she a real ghost? So, we don't see her friend we don't see a figure at all. We see that she's playing with someone and someone's throwing the ball back and things like that. But we don't see her face until Amy sees a photo of Irena. Yes, that's right. And she doesn't have a name until she asks her mom, who's this lady in the photo? And she says, oh, that's Irena or whatever. Like, she doesn't have a name until Amy learns the name. She doesn't have a face until she sees a photo. But, like, what's interesting is in the scenes before we see that face, like, she does have a shadow on the wall, and she does have, like, a presence. But, yeah, she doesn't have dialogue yet. She's just her friend, right? But. But. She sings a lullaby that is a lullaby that is in Cat People um, that Reyna says is, like, her favorite song or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's no way Amy would know that. Yeah, and it exists independently of her fantasy, because, like, we hear her friend, who doesn't have a name or a face yet, like, sing the lullaby. But we also have a separate scene away from the fantasy world where Amy's trying to, like, hum that lullaby. And Alice is like, wait, what was that? Like, what do you, what was that that you were singing? You know, um, like, the song exists, and we know it exists from cat people, right? So, yeah, I, based on the exact same piece of evidence... Uh, as as that, uh, like, I think Irene is a real ghost. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's just part of Amy's imagination. Because, yeah, there's no way she could know about the, the song. Corollary to that, speaking of how, like, every bit of this movie is, like, super identifiably Val Luton, Amy asks Irena at one point where she came from. <laughs> and Irena's answer is a place of... I think she says great darkness and peace. Yes. Which is like such a Val Luton expression of like what death is. Like to say like, yeah, death is, you know, eternal oblivion. 
which is like it's just a, a great darkness. Like she wasn't in heaven, she wasn't in hell, she was nothing. But that's great. <laughs> like that's a that's a very peaceful thing for Val Luton as opposed to like a terrifying thing, right? And that's such a Luton idea, the idea that death is good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that was something that definitely, like, struck out to me. It struck out to me as something that, like, not only was very Luton, but also, I think, bolstered the idea that, like, this is really Irena's ghost somehow. Because that's, like, not something... A kid would come up with. Right! That Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, related to that, what do you think of Irena's image going over Barbara? Yeah, I don't know, man, you could, you, there's a lot you can, there's a lot of term papers you can write, man. Because <laughs> um, I, I do feel like we have characters in this movie who don't know how to grapple with reality nor mm-hmm. fantasy. Mm-hmm. Julia Farron lives almost completely in her fantasies, like she's clearly like not all there. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt like there would be moments... I don't know. She reminded me of people I've met who have Alzheimer's a yeah. little bit. And just so she's just completely in her fantasy and that is incredibly detrimental to her daughter's health. Yeah, honestly. like like Barbara Barbara's taking care of her and she won't even like open Barbara's Christmas present. You know, she she won't look Barbara in the eye, but she'll go on and on about her ring from the King of Spain, right? Like and that kind of that kind of behavior is behavior that's familiar to me. Yeah. Um, and then you have Amy, which we've already talked about Amy. Oliver, who... Now, here's the thing about Oliver. We said in the context setting, it's made clear at the end of the movie mm-hmm. of Cat People that Irena was a cat person. Yeah, the dead body of Irena is a dead panther. That's the last shot of the movie, right? Like, yeah. But in this movie, Oliver talks about Irena as if it was all fantasy, as if he's in denial that there was a supernatural element to things. He seems to just want to believe that it's all fiction, it's all fantasy, and therefore he can put a door behind it, but he's clearly still troubled by his experience. Well, and and the insistence that it's all fantasy is itself a fantasy. Yes. If we aren't taking that as a retcon. Right. Yes. Like that's if, fair. if if we're taking that as proof that Oliver's in denial, also like this is when he's telling the story of Irena to Amy's teacher, because um, Amy's teacher is very concerned about Amy as well. She's not really a character we mentioned in the plot summary, but she's a really good character in the movie. She gives Oliver a lot of advice about like how to better handle a kid with an imagination rather than just being like imaginations are like lying. You shouldn't have them. Um, and what's funny is she actually, um, she brings up, like, a, a book uh, about, like, pedagogy, basically, that she cites some stuff from. That's a real book. Mm-hmm. Because, of course it is, because it's a Val Luton movie. And he does his research. I get the feeling, like, there's probably a version of the story of Irena that Alice and Oliver have agreed is what they will tell other people. Which is another, to kind of bring it back to an earlier point, really common thing you get in families with traumas and tragedies and, like, negative events in them, which is every family, right? Like, every family has Mm -hmm. the skeletons in the closet, and a lot of times there's the, like, sanitized version that we tell outsiders, right? What do I think about Irena 
superimposing over Barbara. There isn't a lot of evidence in the movie to really support this, at least in the ending of the movie, but the suggestion I kind of got was that, because it's not about Irena protecting Amy from Barbara, because that's like a really weird way to go about protecting someone, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, if I'm trying to protect a child from, like, a dangerous lion... I don't, like, stand with the line and be like, come over here, child. Like, that's nonsense. But in superposing herself upon Barbara, it makes Amy go to Barbara and hug her, which seems to be kind of like what Barbara needs in that moment. I feel like what it is, is it's Irena saying to Amy, I can't be your friend anymore. You know, and obviously neither can Mrs. Farron, she's dead. But you can be friends with Barbara, because Barbara needs a friend. That's kind of what I got from that. Mm. Yeah, see, for me, it, it's... Reyna appeared to heal something. Mm-hmm. To heal the loneliness and sadness in a child. To heal a bit of the relationship between Amy and Oliver. Mm-hmm. And now to heal Barbara. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Luton's trying to say fantasy can do. Like, mm. it can... Fantasy, like anything else, can hurt and harm and can help and heal. Right. Yeah, I think I could agree with that, for sure. So, is the next D&D cleric you're going to play going to have, like, Irena as their, like, patron deity that, like, powers their <laughs> healing spells? <laughs> no, that's why I'm a bard. I'll just hum her song. Right. So, I kind of came away from this movie thinking we weren't going to rank it because it wasn't to me quite it didn't fit in that horror box confidently enough i think we've done a really good job of identifying that there is a fear that's being expressed in this movie i'm not 100 percent sure if like i could describe one of the goals of this movie to be to make the audience feel afraid which is one of my other definitions and I don't know if it fits the I'll know it when I see it definition either. Because, like, as I've talked about in countless other episodes, a scary scene or two does not a horror movie make. So I kind of walked away feeling like we weren't going to rank this, but it feels like you are more on the side of ranking it. I am. Because, yes, a scene here or there does not a horror movie make. Um, but this feels like a movie that is a horror movie for children. Mm. Um, It feels... Sanitized is the wrong word, but it feels like it has the level of horror and those moments Mm -hmm. um, that would tap into a child's fear. Right. um, And would make them scared. The parts that make an adult scared, what I was trying to get at is, like, that's not exactly here, and that's why it's not quite... We're not quite sure where to put it. Um, but I, I think Luton is putting in one of those, like, psychological subconscious fears of, like, oh, God, am I passing on my trauma to my kid? Right, for sure. Um, that existential fear. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, you can have movies that are about existential fears that aren't horror movies either, right? Like, I, I think, like, there are plenty of dramas that aren't necessarily horror just because the central characters have, like fears, you know what I mean? <laughs> um I but I get your point about it being like a horror movie for kids. It's weird because when I think about horror movies for kids, 
I kind of think about like, I don't know, stuff like Goosebumps or whatever, where it's like, it's, it's basically like spooky, spoopy, Halloween-y kind of like monsters that go blah. And this is like, this is Luton horror for kids, right? Where like, if Goosebumps is kind of the toned down for kids version of like a, a monster movie, it's also tough because like a lot of straight up horror movies from this era, especially the Universal stuff, has over the course of time kind of become kids movies. Yeah. Like I think like I first saw Frankenstein when I was like 6 or 7 with my grandfather like it it you know cuz it's a movie you can show for kids cuz it's fine. It's 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 fine. You know, like so it's weird to compare like <laughs> the you know to say like it's it's weird to say no, this isn't horror because it's for kids. But Frankenstein is definitely horror when, like, I would show Frankenstein to a five-year-old without questioning it. If if your argument is that this is cat people for six-year-olds, I think I can get behind that argument. It's just weird because I'm not six. Like, I almost want... Yeah. I want to be able to get, like, our nephew in here and have him watch the movie and then be like, okay... Was that scary? Did yeah, that scare you? There's no dinosaurs. I don't know if he'd be interested. Sure. Um, but I, I, I'll... If you want to rank it, we'll rank it. I don't have, like, a range picked out because I didn't plan on considering it horror. But uh, I think I think if you... I, I buy your argument. Okay. Cool. So where are you looking here, Sarah? So I feel like this movie is ahead of its time. As kind of, as you kind of alluded to with like movies like Pan's Labyrinth or It or me bringing up The Shining, but I think in terms of the horror of its time, um, it's a little wonky. Yeah, yeah, so, I think a little wonky is a good <laughs> good descriptor. So I was looking at the list for another movie that felt a little wonky, especially in its tone. And what it was trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And I thought of The Devil Doll from 1936. So that's all the way down at number... Ranked at number 66. Okay. Um, Now, The Devil Doll was bonkers. um, And I think... I feel like Curse of the Cat People is way more well-constructed. Yeah, the thing about Devil Doll is like... it, Like Curse of the Cat People, it has a lot of different genre elements happening... But the feeling I get about Curse of the Cat People is like, this is a specific thing that Val Luton is doing, that he's trying to like make a point about something. Like, this is one voice, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, Whereas Devil Doll had three separate movies edited into one. Yeah, Devil Doll felt... If Curse of the Cat People is having a hard time as a movie appealing to anybody because it's so idiosyncratic... The Devil Doll felt like it was trying to appeal to everyone by throwing in a little bit of everything. So I, I, I think my impulse, if we're ranking this movie, is to go above Devil Doll. Yeah. Um, but then we hit Mystery of the Wax Museum, Return of Dr. X, The Mad Monster, and then Voodoo Man. Mm. So this area of the list, there's a lot of, like... This wasn't a very good horror movie. Mm-hmm. So it's tough to rank this movie That's in this area because it's good. Very, it's good. It's well constructed. It's saying something. It's going to be sitting with me for a while. But in the context of the time it's being made in, 
like I said, I think it's ahead of its time in the same way that, like, Seventh Victim mm-hmm. felt ahead of its time. I feel like this... Maybe maybe I'm overthinking it, trying to rank it in the in the frame of mind that someone in 1944 would think of it. But I'm I'm kind of thinking in this area of yeah, the list. I get what you're trying to say. It, it's what we have here is a bunch of horror movies that aren't very good. And what we have here with Curse of the Cat People is a good movie that isn't really much horror in terms of like what horror was in 1944. Like that dichotomy in Curse of the Cat People happens from the moment the movie starts when the music over the title cards is horror music. It's all bum, 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 bum. And then the like actual title cards themselves are like, <laughs> these like images that could come out of like a, a like a child's picture book. Yeah, you know, like out of like very soft illustrations. Yeah, it's like some Peter Rabbit shit. Yeah. Um. So, Voodoo Man was like kind of bad. Yes. In a fun sort of way. Yes. Above Voodoo Man is the Invisible Man, Man Returns. Returns. So I'm kind of inclined to put this below Invisible Man Returns because that's a horror movie for adults and, like, a dude gets strangled in it and Vincent Price goes crazy and tries to kill a bunch of people. But above Voodoo Man, which has, like, Bela Lugosi, you know, in some, like, Sorcerer's Apprentice-ass robes while George Zuko in, like, a Halloween, like, Native American headdress, like, chant stuff... And, you know, uh, John Carradine plays the Tom-Toms. Oh, yeah. What a So, movie. that's kind of where I'm inclined. I can, I can get behind that. Okay. So, coming in at 62. Which, <laughs> the second week in a row, we've ranked a movie in this spot. Um, yeah, coming into the list at number 62 is The Curse of the Cat People from 1944, directed by Gunther von Frisch and Robert Wise. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can submit an appeal uh, through our ask box, or you can contact us directly through email, screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to also... Rant at us on Twitter, at underscore Scream Scene. We love to discuss movies and uh, doing so with our thumbs. It's something we enjoy. So, at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can also get Scream Scene through any podcasting app by subscribing to our RSS feed. If the way that you listen to the show allows you to leave a rating or a review, doing so really helps us out a lot, so we'd appreciate it. Uh, We'd also appreciate it if you just told a friend about the show, someone who you think would enjoy it, whether they're someone who's into horror movies or old movies or... Tell your therapist about Curse of the Cat People and how it helped you work through your childhood trauma. Right. Uh, You can do that either through social media or um, in therapy. (laughs) Another way you can help support the show is by heading to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get uh, bonus content from Sarah and I, and if we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we're going to start doing bonus episodes once a month on horror-adjacent movies. 
Do you think we do Secret of Nim? I don't know if that's I don't know. like considered a horror movie. If it is, then we yeah. won't because we have to wait till we get to the eighties. Yeah, I don't know if like I don't think so. Um, but I think like Curse of the Cat People is a really good example of like movies that are sequels to horror movies that aren't quite horror. That is certainly the kind of thing we would look at as a horror adjacent movie. Stuff like um, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, or Aliens, or um, Army of Darkness. Uh, those kind of movies where the sequel takes it into a different genre. So that's patreon.com slash Podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are back at the Producers Releasing Corporation. PRC. For The Monster Maker, directed by Sam Newfield, starring Jake Carroll Nash and Ralph Morgan. So we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.